Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being here on this Tuesday afternoon. We are going to continue the conversation about the future of policing in Surrey. As you likely know, the new Surrey City Council has made the first major vote on this issue and opting to keep the RCMP. That is, instead of moving forward with the transition to a civic police force, at some point now, staff in that city will be giving a report to BC Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth on what the next steps are that they would like to see. But if you heard Norm Lipinski, the chief of the Surrey Police Service, talking earlier with Mike Smith, he talked about the fact he is not going to stop hiring and it is still moving ahead as far as he is concerned. Well, joining us now is Melissa Granham, Executive Director of the Surrey Police Board. Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. You're welcome, Jill. Uh, So we heard from the mayor of Surrey, Brenda Locke, earlier today on Mornings with Simi. As I mentioned, Chief Norm Lipinski was on the Mike Smith show. It seems like both camps continue to be in very, very different places in taking opposite positions. What does this mean, do you think, as far as what happens now with the Surrey Police Service and the Surrey Police Board? Well, I think the board is not surprised at the decision from last night. It was not unexpected. Um, We are disappointed that we did not have an opportunity to speak with council before they made that decision. And and we view that council motion as the next step in this this process. And ultimately, it's important to remember that the decision does still remain with the Minister of Public Safety. So under the Police Act, um, just to go back to Chief Lipinski's comments, it's it's really important to understand that the, the board is directed by the legislation written under the Police Act. And under that act, it's the province that has authority over the board. So while boards typically work closely with mayor and council, um, as you can understand, this is an unprecedented situation that we're dealing with. And we do turn, we will turn to the province for advice and guidance on next steps around what we should be doing. How important is timing here, though, with the numbers? And uh, I know that that you and the the Surrey Police Board put out a lot of numbers yesterday that people have been asking to see. When we look at the money that has been spent, the people that have been hired, how important is timing in that now we're going to see this report from Surrey Council go to the Public Safety Minister? I think Norm Lipinski, Chief Lipinski, said he too has been speaking with the province. The mayor says she's been speaking with the province as well as the federal government. Do we not? need to see pretty swift action here. We do. Time really is of the essence for a couple of reasons. One is the human beings that are involved in the project. Uh, Both the RCMP and the SPS have been dealing with this now for a while. The RCMP in particular have been dealing with it since 2018. Um, And and SPS has attracted some exceptional police officers right from here in Surrey and across the country. and, And we don't want to lose those police officers from Surrey. So that's one issue. The second is that we do need to table a budget. The board needs to submit a budget to the city for approvals for next year. And um, in order for the board to table that budget and for council to make any sort of decision, there has to be an understanding of which direction uh, the province will go with its decision. So uh, those two are sort of the, the most key factors in, in time being of the essence. Uh, one of the issues along uh, all along has been the true costs of what this transition looks like, where things are with numbers, and, and uh, there seems to have been uh, information out there, or maybe it, it wasn't completely clear. Uh, the Surrey Police Service and the Police Board released uh, information on this yesterday as far as the number of officers that 
that are on the ground. It also talks about so the 349 sworn and civilian employees. It talks about $108.3 million in costs that have been incurred to date. Uh, it co- goes on to talk about the, the loss of investment if this doesn't go ahead, if the transition is reversed, uh, sunk costs. Uh, it talks about severance. Why was all of that information released only hours before the Surrey City Council vote? Well, excuse me, the board does post our financials every month. So what we post on a monthly basis is the one-time spending associated to the council-approved budget, and that is the infrastructure budget to build SPS. We also report monthly on our operational spending, and those have always been available on our website. What we issued yesterday was an evaluation of the total expenses related not only to our spending to date, which is public, but also the financial impact of reversing the decision, which includes non-recoverable spending and severance liability, and we estimate those two uh, items to drive the cost of a reversal up to the one hundred and approximately ninety million dollars that we talked about. So until we had a chance to see what council was going to receive on the weekend, it was difficult for us to to do anything but talk about what we uh, publicly report on, which as I mentioned is the one time spending and our operational budget. So this this was a bit of a deeper dive for us uh, to to determine what it it truly looks like. And when you look at that number uh, that, that you just mentioned, so this release says that terminating the police transition uh, by January of 2023, uh, again, that projected loss of up to $188.5 million, uh, that would be $107 million of the unrecoverable sunk cost plus $81.5 million when we're looking at employment terminations. And it says whether through working notice, immediate severance or, com- or a combination. Does every member of the the people that are currently employed by the Surrey Police Board, by the Surrey Police Service, does every member who has been hired get severance? So this is a very complicated issue, and, and it will depend on if the government were to reverse its decision and, and um, give Surrey back to the RCMP. There would be a number of different uh, gates, if you will, in terms of winding down the SPS. So that is a, a an overall um severance liability that sits on the books. And so uh, when you look at determining severance and working notice, it's dependent on rank and position. So what the what those officers are doing, whether they're integrated into police services at the front line or whether they're working um, administratively in uh, through police service in those positions that exist in other agencies, such as professional standards. So there's a number of unknown factors that we would need to look at and determine exact costs. Uh, associated to that winding down and and, um, delivering working notice or immediate severance. And in the meantime, when we hear Chief Lipinski, and again, when he was speaking uh, with Mike Smith, and he said uh, he has no intention of of freezing hiring, of stopping this, uh, even with that council vote, uh, would that not then also mean that should this be reversed? And again, we don't know what the provincial uh, decision is going to be, but if that continues, would that not mean that the costs would be even higher? The costs are continuing to grow on a, I would say, a monthly basis because of um, the every employee we bring on, we're bringing on additional severance liability. The issue is is that the province has indicated to both SPS through Chief Wapinski and, and to us that they expect us to continue hiring um, because Surrey Police uh, is augmenting the front line and, and Surrey does need the police officers at the front line um, in order to ensure there's sufficient staffing. And it's also important to understand when it comes to hiring, we've hired police officers now for January, and we've hired new recruits to go into the police academy for January. So the ripple effect of this won't really be felt until spring, because you don't just hire a police officer on Monday and 
put them out on the road on Tuesday. It takes some time to recruit, do background, uh, train them, get them up to speed on Surrey, and and get them out policing. They also have to undergo some um, orientation with the RCMP. So there's a there's a process involved in, in putting police officers on the street. So we do have um, we swore in police officers last week, um, 20 more police officers, which brings our total up to 315 for the city. Um, and again, we have JI recruits for January. So those people have been hired. They've given um, notice to their other employees, and and they are our employees. So. Um, a hiring freeze would need to be a discussion between the province and the board to determine what that would look like um, if that's what the province is asking for. Right. As of yet, we don't know that. Right. But did, you did say, didn't you, just there that the province has told the Surrey Police Service to continue hiring and to continue that momentum? Yeah. So what we're working in, uh, within is an agreement uh, called the HR plan. And that's an agreement with the Trilateral Committee, which is made up of the city of Surrey, BC and Canada, um, and obviously the SPS and the board are involved in that as well. And that dictates the hiring cadence for SPS into Surrey from now, well, from earlier this year into the end of May of next year. And the province has said at this point that that hiring plan is still in place. And until we, like I said, until we hear differently from the province, who is um, the authority, the body of authority over the, the board, um, we, we can't make a unilateral decision and, and the city of Surrey can't direct us to do anything of the sort. Oh, so we know now, uh, as it stands now, the city of Surrey will be giving its report to the provincial government, to the public safety minister. When do you realistically need to hear from the public safety minister and hear a decision on this? Well, obviously, the public safety minister needs to take some time to um, evaluate the report that's submitted to him. He's going to have a lot of questions, I'm sure, that he needs answered. So, you know, in a perfect world, we'd love to hear about it before Christmas, but ideally, you know, realistically, we're looking probably at January, early February for a decision. And so the board's key focus right now is ensuring that Surrey police officers stay here in Surrey and that we maintain um, our sworn strength so that we can carry forward if the decision goes our way, um, and also so that we don't lose police officers, which will impact the front line and ultimately could impact on public safety in Surrey. So um, the decision we're hoping comes very early in the new year. Right. So so no matter what, then at this point, it's kind of business as usual, going full full steam ahead for you and, and waiting for that decision? Yes. Yes, that's correct. All right, Melissa, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You're so welcome. Well, coming up a little bit later on in the program, we are going to check in with a farmer, one of a few farmers that are about 30K outside of Merritt and what a year they have been having and not in a good way. And some of them actually met with BC Liberal MLA Ian Payton to talk more about what they are going through and what kind of help they are needing. So we're going to talk to the farmer a bit later on in the show, but Ian Payton is with us right now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Good afternoon, Jill. Good afternoon to you. Uh, you met with some of the farmers that have been in areas not only impacted by flooding, but others, fires, mudslides, what have you. Uh, what did you find out or what are you hearing from people in these areas? Well, first of all, Jill, I'd like to go back basically a year ago from today and um, you know, as the opposition critic for agriculture, which is pretty much my whole background, uh, I I hustled up uh, two different helicopter flights to um, 
be able to survey all the damage and the flooding in the Sumas uh, area, Abbotsford area. And it was absolutely devastating to see so many poultry barns and dairy farms and people's houses completely, you know, sitting in, you know, five, six feet of water. It was incredible. Um, from there, I got up to Abbotsford on foot and, and tried to talk to as many dairy farmers and poultry producers as I could. And I've also been up to Merritt and uh, discuss the issues with ranchers and all the issues that they're trying to deal with, with, um, you know, rebuilding and getting back on their feet and, and trying to get some sort of compensation from the province. Uh, what is happening with the compensation? Because I know that that is something we've been hearing about. And one of the issues being that it does take a long time in some cases, and also farmers and ranchers having to put the money out up front and not being able to do that. Exactly. And just in the last three or four days, knowing we're coming up to the anniversary of this horrendous uh, flooding, um, I have contacted and talked to many uh, farmers and homeowners, uh, not only in the Abbotsford Sumas uh, Prairie area, but also up in uh, uh, Highway 8, up in between Spencer's Bridge and uh, Merritt. And there is a lot of frustration. I mean, you know, I don't want to throw too many stones, but the government, the NDP, is very good at doing, um, you know, photo ops and getting the cameras out to a farm to say, you know, everything's rosy posy. But uh, there's a lot of farmers and homeowners that that are still dealing with, you know, very complicated applications to get compensation over a year ago and still haven't seen compensation for damage and if they did get compensation it's maybe at the 70% level so people are out hundreds of thousands of dollars of uh, of work that they've had to do on their own to replace equipment to replace livestock to replace buildings um and then of course our meeting yesterday with ranchers up on Highway 8 and Merritt and Spencer's Bridge, four different ranchers that have just recently in August of 2022, after another massive rainfall, uh, have, have had to deal with a massive mudslide that's covered up their home properties on their, their farms and ranches. And, and they're not getting any financial assistance through DFA. And that's one certainly that hasn't been talked about as much as we have focused more on on a year since the flooding in the Fraser Valley and and those areas. Uh, Something you mentioned, though, as well, and this has come up recently, is the equipment and farming equipment specifically, which is very expensive, as you would know. But equipment that was lost to flooding and to to, uh, in the mudslide, say, and and farmers saying, it wasn't insured because the insurance is simply too much that farmers can't afford to have insurance on this equipment. So it was lost, but still needs to be replaced. How do we deal with that issue of farmers not being able to insure equipment? You know, insurance for agricultural properties is a huge problem, Jill, all over the province. When you see the number of fires that we've had in the last two or three years, um, flooding, um, all these different climate events, uh, insurance company, even on my own farm, you know, it's just absolutely going through the roof, the premiums. And there's a lot of insurance companies won't touch farmers and ranchers with a 10-foot pole now, now if they're in an area near forested areas or areas that may be subjected to flooding. So it's um, it's a very sad situation where a lot of uh, farmers and ranchers can't even get insurance on their their equipment or their buildings because they're in a flood zone.
And when we look at what's been done as far as helping those who were caught in the flooding, who lost uh, homes, uh, who lost buildings, equipment, livestock, uh, what can be done or what more can be done uh, to, to kind of mitigate that or to stop that from happening in the future? Well, you know, that's a good question. You know, as as we know, a lot of the flooding occurred because of the Nooksack River just uh, south of the border in Washington State. Um, what we need to do is we need to look at the fact that climate change is for real and it's happening, and we're going to probably see more forest fires, more flooding happen, you know, maybe sooner than later. So, you know, it's it's a very, very big-ticket item to to lay this on municipalities and regional districts to say, look, you need to upgrade your dikes and whatnot. But the province and the federal government, they're the ones with the money that have to step up and say, look, it's time we really upgraded our dikes, um, our our drainage canals, our pumping stations, all these different things, because we've got to figure this is going to happen again in the future, and we've got to start getting prepared for it. And Jill, I know you know from down our way in Ladner and Delta area, it's so important that we upgrade our pumping station and our dikes and raise our dikes, because who knows when the Fraser River is going to um, spill its banks one day as well. Right, uh, indeed. And and not to suggest that, that we're not dealing with climate change at all, uh, but is it fair to, to refer to this kind of flooding as a direct ex- or a direct result of climate change? When we're talking about something like the Sumas Prairie, we're talking about an area that is a floodplain, that without the pumping stations, without that whole system in place, it, it would be flooded. Is it fair to, to make the direct connection saying this is happening because or solely because of climate change? Well, you know, I, I'm certainly not a, um, a meteorologist or an expert on, on climate. I, I'm just simply suggesting that, you know, I do believe that things are changing. Uh, whether they will change consistent, consistently into the future, I'm not sure. But, you know, you're correct in saying that Sumas, Sumas was a lake at one time 100 years ago. So it's certainly at a level that could be subjected to the fact that it was a lake 100 years ago. And people that have farms or ranches right next to, to rivers are subjected to the fact that they may overflow at some point again in the future. So we need to look at, you know, can we move forward with dredging? Can we move forward with uh, improving our dike system? Can we move forward with better pump systems so if there is flooding, that water gets pumped out immediately? And how quickly, and again, one of the issues being with the individuals is the time that it takes for compensation for disaster relief funding. I mean, if it's taking time for that, how quickly do you think we can address those other issues? Well, you know, I'm, I'm reading articles this morning. I mean, there's all sorts of everything in the media and on television and radio this morning about the one-year anniversary of this major atmospheric river. Um, you know, the NDP government are saying, well, you know, their their slogan has sort of always been, you know, we need to, uh, to, uh, to build uh, better for the future. Well, let's get moving on it. We have to make some decisions and get on with it because right now they're talking that maybe in 2030 uh, things might start happening with improving our dikes. We've got to get going because who knows if this may happen again in the next year or two or three years or whatever. So um, it's a big ticket item, but it's something we have to really uh, think seriously about. All right. Uh, Ian Payton, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much, though, for joining us. 
You're very welcome, Jill. And I just want to shout out to all the farmers and ranchers in BC um, that, that, you know, we're so lucky that, that the farming community has so many great neighbors and friends and relatives, and everybody came to the rescue, whether it was in Princeton or Merritt or, or Abbotsford and Sumas. It was just a great community effort to help people out and to save cattle and to save people's homes, put it that way. It, absolutely. And as I mentioned, we're going to talk to one of them a bit later on in the show. Uh, Ian Payton, though, thank you again so much. Anytime. Thanks, Jill. Well, it's uh, probably not surprising to hear that people are taking action and trying to find ways to deal with increasing food prices and to make those dollars stretch. Well, a new Research Co. poll has found more about what people are doing when it comes to buying groceries. And Research Co. President Mario Canseco joins us now to talk more about this. Mario, thank you so much for, be here, for uh, being here. Hi. My pleasure, Jill. Great to be here with you. Uh, I, I even noticed it uh, the other day I was shopping and, and just noticed it, it just seemed like people were spending more time looking at the prices and really focused on saving money and making those dollars stretch. But what have you found as far as asking uh, British Columbians specifically about the high price of food right now? Well, the one thing that we asked them at the start of the survey was what they've noticed whenever they've been trying to buy some food. And the numbers are staggering. We have 82% of British Columbians who say that the price of groceries has increased over the past two months. About 7 in 10 who feel the same way about lunch at a restaurant or dinner at a restaurant. 49% who say that food delivery has increased. Now, this one's a little bit tricky because it's not as if it's a significantly lower proportion, but we have a lot of people over 55 who don't really rely on food delivery, so they're a little bit uh, undecided on, on, on this one particularly. Uh, but it's certainly something that is affecting every generation in the same way and also every single region. There's no part of BC where you can see people saying, I haven't noticed prices increasing when it comes to food. And it's certainly one thing to take a look at people saying, okay, well, I'm cutting back on dining out or going to restaurants specifically on the weekend. And and that does have a ripple effect, obviously, with restaurants and with businesses, but very different from hearing from people saying uh, we're looking at perhaps even skipping meals or really trying to find ways to make those dollars stretch. Well, we see a significant uh, level of uh, BC residents who are making sacrifices right now. And we have a question where we asked them about seven things that they could have done over the past month uh, to reduce how much they're spending on food. And there's only 14% of British Columbians who haven't done anything. So um, more than 80% who actually have done something about this. And some of the numbers are quite striking. You know, cutting back on buying a lunch or going out to lunch on a weekday is at 61%. So now that we're heading back to the office, this is particularly dramatic for the food services industry. You know, they had a rough pandemic. They're starting to get people back into uh, their, their restaurants or their coffee shops. And they're finding a public that is not willing to spend more money right now because it's very tight. And we have 44% of British Columbians who have switched packaged food brands to lower-priced alternatives. This reaches 51% in northern British Columbia and 49% in the lowest income bracket. So the sacrifices are there for everybody, but some people are feeling the pinch more than others.
And we are going to open up the phone lines and talk more about this in a few moments. But it's interesting when you mention that, because whenever we do talk about this, inevitably we hear from people who say uh, that they've switched the brands years ago or months ago when realizing Mm. that when you open up the packages, oftentimes it's the exact same thing. Well, it's something that we're noticing more. And, And one thing that is really striking about the findings here is that women are more likely to be noticing this. They're more likely to say, I've noticed the prices increasing. They're more likely to say, we're going to be cutting back on some of the family budget when it comes to these things. And they're also more likely to say, we're switching packaged food brands to lower priced alternatives. So there's a lot of attention being paid to this. And it's a a very complex time for this to happen. We're heading into the holiday season, gifts, expenditures, a lot of stuff that we don't usually pay for in other months of the year. And we see British Columbians reaching this stage, which was supposed to be a celebration. Finally, one year after the pandemic is over, we can get together with family, we can travel, whatever you were dreaming about. And you're facing a lot of added expenditures because of trying to eat well. And talk a bit about that, if you can, because you also asked people about a healthy diet. And we know that that sometimes, not all the time, but, but sometimes really unhealthy foods can be a lot cheaper. So what did you find about British Columbians and concerns about maintaining a relatively healthy diet? Well, we have 34% of British Columbians who acknowledge that their diet has not been healthy over the past two months. We were expecting a bit of a generational divide, but it's not there. We see about a third of people of all ages who are saying that they haven't had a chance to eat healthy over the past two months. The number one problem is their inability to afford healthier food. So 61% of PC residents saying, I would like to do something that is healthier. I just can't afford it right now. But also 51% who say the stress and the pressures of daily life are getting in the way. And I can understand this because we're coming back from a pandemic when we were essentially at home, not spending a lot of money on dining out or going out. And now we're back into the office situation, having to drive to places, having to come back, having to commute. And there's people who are saying it's easier to just pop something on the microwave, even if it's not particularly healthy for me, because that's all I can do right now. And do you think this was when we look at the price of food and uh, well, the price of everything, really, but is it getting to that specific level or it's getting to the point where, like you said, you're seeing so many people responding, saying, yes, they've now noticed this and they are changing things. And like you said, I think it was only 14 percent haven't made any adjustments. I mean, it seems like we've kind of not a breaking point, but it seems like we have got to that point where it's, it's almost impossible to ignore this, even if you wanted to. Well, it is impossible to ignore, and we can look at our jurisdictions that are trying to do their best to get people motivated into spending their money again. Uh, one of the ways to do this is to tax, uh, to, uh, tax a, a breaks or, or finding a way to send a rebate check. This is something that other provinces have done in the past when we face this type of situation, because this is going to start to affect everybody differently. The services industry needs to get back, and they're having a tough time because people don't really feel like spending their money going out to restaurants, but it's also starting to affect our own nutrition. And to me, this is crucial. British Columbia has always been one of the healthiest provinces in the country. You look at the numbers when it comes to exercise and when it comes to eating healthy, we're up there significantly higher than what we have in other provinces in the country. So now that we have 61% of those who say that their diet is unhealthy, blaming the situation uh, that's related to inflation, that could lead to some troubling statistics down the road.
Which is interesting, too. And I know the study kind of touches on this. When we're talking about people cutting back on going to restaurants or going out or even getting food delivery, I think not all of the time, but sometimes, I mean, you tend to eat more. There's probably more salt than you might put at home. You might indulge in foods that maybe you're not going to make at home as much. So if we're seeing this shift to people cooking or preparing food at home more, it almost feels like there should be a shift to to maybe slightly healthier, but maybe that's not that. That's not what's happening. No, this is also part of what is making this very complicated because we could have an opportunity to educate ourselves better and to find those alternatives. But part of it is the lack of money. We don't have the same type of expending uh, of, of spending uh, money to go around. But it's also the problems that we have now that we're going back into the office. People saying the stress is getting in the way. I don't have food. Sorry, I, I don't have time to actually prepare food the way I would like to. This is something that 33% of British Colombians are telling us about. But it climbs to 49% with the youngest demographic. So you're more likely to be coming back from work tired, hungry, trying to order something, trying to pop something on the microwave. This is essentially where it's going. All right, Mario, thank you as always for joining us and for sharing these results with us. My pleasure, Jill, anytime.